Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another hot edition of 100 Proof. I'm here in the booth with Sam, Punk9059. Kevin is unfortunately out of the office today, but we've got the Mr. Regular back in the house. Uh, Sam, how you doing, my friend? What's up, man? So much going on. So much going on, so little time. Should we, uh, should we just jump right into it? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. So uh, I think really quick, just to, to kick off the show... Grails, obviously you're you're you've been watching Eli work. Uh, maybe give a quick little recap on where we're at and where minting stands on some of these projects and when the last data mint is and and maybe some of the stuff that um, that folks need to know before this episode goes out because I think things will still be hot before uh, by the time this thing is uh, is live. For sure. So I, I, they launched the actual mint process. So. What that basically means is that everyone gets these passes. I think for those who don't know what uh, Grails is, basically everybody in the Proof Collective and a few other kind of Moonbird holders based on traits or other other factors get a Grail pass. And for, with that Grail pass, you can mint one of 20 different NFTs, pieces of art. Now the kicker of the whole process though, is that when you are minting the art, you don't know what who the actual artist is. So there's all sorts of kind of guessing and interesting ideas that go into it. And you know, certain artists like Dimitri Cherniak's Grail has a 14 ETH floor. Uh, Larva Labs did one, yeah, the, the maker of punks. The and of yeah, theirs has, I think it's a 30, 35 ETH floor and once had a 80 ETH sale. So you can really, you know, make a lot of money or get something of real provenance if you, you know, it was with, with certain Grails. So that's kind of the background. The interesting things that are different if for Grail season three, where we're at right now is one, uh, they're allowing generative pieces where instead it used to always just be, you get one piece, but now uh, you can get a generative piece where there are 150 additions, get one of those. And the second thing is that the team has capped the total supply. So the maximum that can be actually minted of any individual piece other than the generative ones is just 50. Um, so on that first day, when you started minting, you know, you saw a bunch of different pieces that a bunch of different pieces that minted out pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think that a lot more of the passes got minted early. It used to be that people would wait till the end. There's still 311 that have not been burned or, or minted yet passes. So I think there's five more days to do that. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it, cool. it's a pretty exciting process. This is cool. A couple of the things that are very striking to me, um, you know, it, it Grails is continuing to level up. So this is Grails 3. Each uh, season of Grails has brought with it kind of new dynamics. And this feels like the most radical shift in understanding, you know, how the product of Grails can be very effective by adding this hard cap supply that brings in like the vector of timing. So you got a race to mint the ones that you feel most compelled to mint before those mints out. And then this idea of what you see now is not necessarily what you get anymore. Uh, this idea of these unique one of one of X projects being sprinkled throughout season three, you know, there is an opportunity to be to mint unique versions of a single collection, which I think is uh, a fascinating a fascinating layer that uh, that Grail three provides that wasn't in previous seasons. So it'll be fun to see how these things play out and and who these artists are. A quick question for you. Uh, for you, Sam, it, uh, you mentioned that some of these minted out quicker than others on that first day. 
do you have you seen any of the speculation on who some of these collectors think these artists are are you um is your ear ear close to the ground here i'm i'm curious to 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 hear from you if you've if you've seen anything from collectors kind of speculating on who some of these artists might be you know i haven't been like this isn't like something i've been deep in the weeds on so it's not yeah it's not something i've gotten too deep on you know grail number three i'll try to pull it up here I think people were speculating. It kind of looks like a kid's drawing, and it was very quick to mint out. I think Gary V was speculated. Uh. Uh, Seneca is something I've heard for Grail number four. Um, there is a yeah, Grail number thirteen was one of those generative projects, or, or just one of one hundred fifty where you'll have un- unique pieces. Uh. Uh, that one minted out very quickly. I'm not. I'm not sure who that is. So, yeah, I haven't uh, heard a ton of the speculation. Now, one of the things that's so cool about Grails, though, is that I think a lot of the artists see this as an opportunity to do something totally different. I love that. So like, yeah, so Snowfro did something totally different, you know, in season two, you know, from what his generative kind of background is. It was something of a, it was basically like a photo, I believe, of of a piece of pottery. It was a pinch pot really that beautiful. he had made and crafted um, during his practice with with um, with ceramics. And then he took a photo of it and layered a generative art project on top. And frankly, I think nobody would have guessed that that was a Snowfro piece, to your point, Sam. For sure. You know, so I think that's good. Cool. Like Dimitri Cherniak's is a photograph, um, which is also really cool. You know, so I think sometimes it's, you know, you have guys like Grant Rivenyun where everyone knew it was Grant Rivenyun, uh, you know, in season two. But a lot of these other artists, is, I think they deliberately make it really, really hard to know uh, who's behind each piece. And that's kind of what's one of the things that's great about this. Product. Yeah, it's a, it's super fun. It's such a great product. I always get excited every time these grills uh, seasons launch and this one is no exception quick just note for the the listenership here when's the last day to mint uh, do you have that off the top of your head sam and then when is the actual live um the live show or the live uh the live event announcing and broadcasting who who each of these artists are um the the live event is on friday the 27th uh danvis gallery in culver city you know i mean i think anyone who's listening to this show knows that danvis uh, kevin is just obsessed loves, with danvis screens. he loves danvis he loves those things, and I haven't seen one, but I'm assuming, given given his enthusiasm, that they're pretty awesome. But at their gallery, uh, there's going to be an event for Grails holders, uh, so that's going to be pretty awesome. I think there's four more days to mint, uh, cool. and be sure you mint. If you don't, if you don't mint, then your NFT, your pass gets burned. So that would not be fun. So be sure to be sure to be sure to mint that thing. Agreed. Hats off, of course, to Eli on our team, who yeah. is just. Kind of Eli is the secret guy it. behind the scenes, man. He just crushes it. No, he is he is uh, emblematic of like the dungeon master as it relates to this these Grails projects. He is doing an amazing job. I'm like blown away at that both the the ability and the the you know the artists that he's able to to curate for each of these seasons, but then also the the dynamics that he's introducing. It's it's uh, it's going to be fun to watch this product evolve over time, and Eli is really driving that. For sure, yeah. So it looks like it's exactly five days, uh, four days, 23 hours. So from today, rule number one of podcasting, never talk about exact dates because people <laughs> hear it at different times. But yeah, so five days, that would be on the 24th of January. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean- Amazing. Uh, well, a bunch of R's are going to be randomized. I don't know what I'm getting yet. I think that randomization for, for my mint is happening either today or tomorrow. So I'm stoked. I can't wait to see what I uh, to see what I land here. Should we um, should we switch gears, Sam? You want to talk about um, got the memes? I mean, the memes are the memes are strong right now, my friend. 
Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's it, it's kind of one of those the the and I really want to get your thoughts on this. You know, the memes six five two nine has this project, um, and it's really been over the past month. You know that they've been minting one one two three, sometimes three a week. Um, and Grant Revenue did one, Kath Samar did one, and you know, and all of those all those memes rose up to 0.8, 0.9 ETH, more than one ETH in, in some cases. Um, and, and you just have the situation where I feel like the market cap of the total collection is just expanding so fast because as more cards get dropped and these are additions of like a thousand, you know, the value of all the other ones continues to go higher, you know? So it's, there's really no dilution here. It's just kind of a situation where as more come on, like everything else gets bit up as well. Can you, um, so. yeah, maybe just a level set and catch people up to speed. Um, you know, just I'll, I'll just kind of speak about who punk six, five, two, nine is. Um, he is a, a hoodie crypto punk, uh, philosopher, something he might be, um, you know, former attorney, um, academic, uh, very sharp has introduced a lot of ideas that um, around kind of the digital asset space and in particular the NFT space that I think um, has made him kind of a um, someone that people look to for for you know resourcing their own internal knowledge about how this space may evolve. He's built an amazing brand around kind of the educational threads that he puts together. Um, he runs a venture fund uh, specific to purchasing kind of these Grail objects. So it's an NFT fund. Uh, he works closely with a number of the, the leading collectors in the space to help manage and run that fund. Uh, so he's very much a believer in the ethos of decentralization, of sovereign ownership over unique objects, um, and how you know the import the importance of the NFT space as it relates to um, not just storing wealth, but uh, its impact on you know greater greater culture uh, and the world we live in over the coming decade. He ended up launching a product called memes. It's a, it's like these meme cards to, that Sam was just describing. And so maybe you can give a quick rundown or explanation of how this thing started, what types of media appears on these meme cards, why people are collecting them, and uh, and then maybe later on why we're seeing this chart look up and to the right for a lot of the new supply that's getting introduced. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of it, you know, one of the the other things, and you really just hit the nail on the head about 6529 and kind of his background. And one of the other things that he is really adamant about, though, is just the idea of the attention economy and the meme economy. Uh, and, you know, on one of his podcasts, he once said, um, you know, that the NFTs are the first crypto use case where people aren't talking about the tech. They're talking about the meme, the product, like, the monkey with something coming out of his eyes like and i think he really believes in in that aspect of it so if he started just with with a very you know a, a, a simple group of them kind of like very pretty basic you know one was like his uh the first gm tweet he ever sent um a few other ones like i want you to seize the memes of production i think these are all like really cool and interesting this one here is is one of my one of my favorites the institutions are coming i won't let them steal my jpegs but, you know, so it started out as just these cards. And I think as it's expanded over time, you know, they've been dropping more. They've been getting more like fantastic artists. So even early on, they had great artists, you know, really well-respected artists. But, yeah, recently they've been getting really well-reputed artists on there. And in order to get one, you know, if there's a lot of randomness involved. But also if you own a full set, you're more likely to get one. If you own a certain number of meme cards, you're more likely to get the new ones. 
So there's kind of all this gamification in there that just encourages people uh, to keep buying more, you know? So I, I think that that's a, another piece of it. Like this, this chart here on the screen kind of looks at the overall market cap. And you see as it's, as it's grown, that blue space, which is just the first 10 has grown as well. Huh. Um, but what, do you, what, one thing I'm curious kind of from your perspective, cause you, you know, you saw this, you were very, very early at our blocks. And one of the things that's interesting to these meme cards is, is that, like I said, there's a new drop like three times a week, which is very similar to art blocks. And I think one would, one would think that as more supply comes on, eventually there'll be less money to go around. Um, but we saw kind of the opposite happened with art blocks and we're seeing it with meme cards that as more and more supply came online, you know, more people got into art blocks and it, as far as I, I can tell, it didn't seem to hurt the prices of the existing ones. Like, is that a correct kind of recounting of how our blocks went and what, what, what's yeah. your kind of take there? So there's a couple of things that play for me when I think about a phenomenon like 6529's meme cards or art blocks curated. I would say the first is, you know, we live in, a, in an economy that's driven, that drives immense value through attention. And if you're able to, to be someone who can network yourself or your work or your platform with attention, uh, that can have positive externalities that play out through demand to hold these objects or demand to, you know, park wealth into into these objects. And so one common denominator between Punk 6529 and Artbox is Punk 6529 is very well networked. He has a ton of attention around himself. He's able to write very articulately about the space. So he draws a very specific type of user into his economy. And he's able to translate that attention over time, like a, an attention flywheel, into the objects that are associated with him and with the economy that he's built through these meme cards. The same principle kind of plays out with, you know, platforms. So Artblocks curated as an institution at this point. It's the place where on-chain generative art really started to blossom. And it's a it you know, represents a movement, a cultural movement, a, an art movement, um, that will, you know, we believe many of these people, you know, many of the people in the space play will be an importantly recognized movement as we draw back, you know, the line through time to kind of like how this and how, you know, crypto art broadly, on-chain work broadly, generative media broadly got started through, you know, pioneers like Snowfro and through institutions like Artblocks. And what happens when you're able to kind of like resource your brand or your platform or your network with that attention is... Attention begets attention, and if you if there's a clever way by which to, you know, introduce objects that are associated that people are demanding to hold, um, it's you know even over time, like it's it's likely that, you know, that attention will will far outpace the supply that's being introduced into the market. And so, the thing that's coming up for me right now when you say that Punk Six Five Two Nine has somewhere between five hundred to a thousand outputs every collection. And art blocks curated drops, you know, I think the last two drops, one was 369 and the, the, the last drop was something like four or 500. You know, when I think about the total amount of users and owners that are demanding to hold these objects, these supplies actually don't look very big. And if you believe that there's a, a growing desire to store wealth in these objects, which I do, and there's a demand to hold, you know, the top objects in some of these ecosystems because they're going to accrete value. Uh, I would say like the numbers that are being introduced still look pretty tiny to me, given like that latent demand that only continues to get bigger and bigger. So those are the kind of the original things that come out for me structurally. That's without even talking about why a certain 
image or media or on-chain project is more interesting than the next. Yeah, I mean, I, kind of speaking to that, you know, like when Grant Yoon does an art card, suddenly a whole new group of people are paying attention. You know, yes. people who weren't 6529 people, but they were Grant Yoon people. And now suddenly you've just onboarded this whole group that might get hooked on on the overall project. And I think that's a lot of what's happening here is they're really getting, you know, and for an artist, it's also great because you get this whole 6529 community to start paying Definitely. attention to your work. Um, Definitely. How do you think about which platforms, Yeah, there are tons of platforms out there. How do you think about which platforms kind of get elevated into this sphere where they become like long-term potential stores of wealth relative to others, which might fade away? Yeah. So I think our blocks, I think, so a couple of things. I think the first thing is to figure out what are the types of objects that people are actually trying to store value in right now. And right now it looks like one-of-one one art for sure. You can point to folks like Beeple or Xcopy. It's for sure things like um, high value collectibles. So things like CryptoPunks, which is somewhere between, you know, pioneer generative art project and crypto collectible. Uh, and then the third category is generative art and generative media. Um, and that would be things like art box pieces. Like there's certainly a desire and a product market fit to store wealth in those three verticals right now. And so the question then becomes, like, where is the natural shelling point for all of those three categories? And I would say for collectibles and for high value collectibles and things that are like maybe enjoy deeper markets and have a bit more liquidity, it's probably something like OpenSea or Blur, right? Like that's kind of where the most bids and, and asks are and sales are happening. For one of one crypto art, to me, it's very clearly things like Super Rare, right? Where it's where a large velocity of new artists get their career started. That's where some of the highest value work has ever traded. Uh, and then for generative art, it's Artbox. And so those three platforms to me represent like the natural shelling points for those verticals of where, of, you know, the job to be done for storing wealth in a one of one or a generative art piece or a crypto collectible, those kind of platforms are kind of representing the shelling point for those verticals to, to, to for markets to get established. And so though that's kind of like a crude way of thinking about it, but that's, that's typically how I think about where, you know, price discovery is happening is typically where these vertical marketplaces have built a brand around being very specialized in, in the, you know, creating these sellable outputs of goods, um, for, for these, these very vertical specific jobs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, just pulled this up as well. A, a CryptoPunk, you know, you guys mentioned last week on the show how a CryptoPunk traded for some Wolf game assets. A CryptoPunk just traded for a full set of meme cards. Wow. Uh, which, to be honest, that makes sense. I think like the, the full meme set is like at 75, 80 ETH right now. Yep. And growing, plus it gives you the, you know, the future tr drops, which essentially have been free money. You know, they, yes. they drop, the mint is 0 0.06529 ETH and they've all immediately gone up 10X, so. Not too What's surprising, but cool to see. Very cool to see. Question for you, Sam, because um, this is fun to kind of like play through. There's, there's like, there's very clearly a trend right now, and we're seeing this with the meme cards, but we're also seeing this with the VV checks, the visualized value checks, and open editions in general. Um, maybe you can riff a bit on like the trend you're seeing on the front lines around that concept of editions, open editions, and gamifying editions whether it's through burn mechanics or, or through other like gamification tactics to 
continue to resource attention around these collections? Like maybe play through this a bit for us. Yeah, I see them as slightly different trends, but um, like I think yeah, I think like the meme like the six five two nine meme cards is is just clearly been the story of the past month in terms of value creation and energy around it. With the the open editions, I think is one of the coolest things going on right now, and I think the the person you have to pay the closest attention to is Jack Butcher uh, and his and his checks project. Yeah, Jack has something like he, Jack is very well known kind of in the media world in the in just the creative agency world he's built a really interesting brand around what, what actually looks like very simple minimalistic art but kind of packs these really interesting messages with, with a pretty big punch but he uh he launched this checks he launched he launched basically a checks piece of art that i think it had 80 80 like verification checks and it said uh, this piece of art may or may not be notable and it was a riff on you know, on on Twitter where if you have a check but you're more recent like bought the check more recently it says this person may or may not be notable I think that's the words so mm-hmm. it was kind of a riff on that um, and it, he sold them as an open edition for eight dollars each um, so also a riff on the fact that people spend eight dollars to get their checks so it's just kind of like this fun thing it ended up selling you know and as and on Jack's Twitter as it was minting more and more. He was like, holy cow, a thousand or even a hundred, two hundred. Whoa. Mm. Like, he didn't expect this to get big. And then at the end of the day, it sold sixteen thousand eight dollar checks, all looked identical, just open edition things that were sitting in people's wallets for eight dollars. And I think he realized he was onto something. And I don't, you know, my, my sense is that he had no expectation of this getting so big. But once it did, he was like, we gotta make this more interesting. So he created uh. this mechanism where if you get two of those originals together, they'll give you a one of one 80 check. So it's just going to have different colors of different types of checks. And then if you burn some of those, you'll get one that has uh, an NFT that only has 40 checks on it. And if you burn enough of those, you'll have one that only has 10 all the way down to just one. Right? And, and, if it, and then once you only have one check, if you put 61 checks together, you get a black check. And that's kind of where the game ends. But ultimately the 16,000, if everybody burns everything to the maximum extent possible, there will just be three of these black checks at the end of the day. So yeah. I think like what he's done is just taken, you know, you had this open edition, which is really common right now. You know, people are spending small amounts of ETH and those numbers are getting pretty high. And then he turned that kind of into a, a currency of its own. Like yeah. having this is a currency to burn more and more. And it just, he, I think kind of just by circumstance, just by luck, serendipity of sorts he he's turned this into this really kind of fun mechanism and game where that individual piece that you originally burned thinking it was nothing has become this currency that's really in demand and the price went from less than 0.01 eth to i don't know like it went up to 0.3 eth per 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 check and now it's uh down about 0.22 but certainly like one of the more interesting projects to watch yeah this is cool i would say like to me, like to unbundle like some of the design decisions that he made here, like this idea of introducing an open edition where it sounds like tens of thousands were minted. Um, how many were to- total minted, Sam? 11,000? 16,000. 16,000 yeah. 16,000 of these 80 checkmarked open editions. I would say like what's really interesting about that is it, it served its role of forming a community around objects, right? So like the fact that you could make people owners of these things 
got them best. They, it acted like a top of funnel way to like form a community very quickly. Like that yeah. is a, a very interesting playbook to run. And then the next job he realized was, okay, we've solved the community formation part by making these wildly accessible and anybody can become an owner for eight bucks. Now the next job to be done is how do we make these things viable? Let's create a mini economy, a game by which people can participate to play that creates this deflationary effect on the asset itself such that they become more scarce the more they're used inside of this game that I've built. So that, you know, if you decide to run the gauntlet and go from 80 to 40 to 20 to 10 to 5 to 4 to 1, you know, a ton of supply is getting burned on that journey. And presumably there will be a few people trying to play that game. Um, now, a, some, a couple of things come up for me. One is, you know, you have, I think uh, oftentimes with these assets, like value is very difficult to pin down. Like, why is this thing valuable? Why do people want to play this game and be in this economy and and actually spend scarce resources to participate? That's a question that I probably need to dig in a little bit more. I know Jack is awesome and I totally, I've been a subscriber of his content for years. He's fantastic. He's great at capturing very complex ideas into very simple visuals. Um, but there's obviously something here that that's resonating with folks that are, you know, people are compelled to play this, play in this economy that he's created. Um, so anyway, fascinating trends here, man, but I'm, I'm, I'm loving kind of the experimentation happening. One other thing I'd throw on is I think that this is like CC zero at its absolute best. You know, you've had so many people, there's something about this format that it's just like really visually appealing. And I, yeah. I'd encourage people just go to, go to Jack Butcher's Twitter at Jack Butcher and just go through all these different derivatives that have been built off this. You know, I just, they're, very, they're cool. very cool looking. You've had like a whole set of a whole crypto punk set just based on checks like doodles, you know, kind of X copy plays. You've really had everything. Yeah. And I think I'll... the result is you're just seeing this stuff everywhere. And it's all like he he's so good with with simple visuals and uh -huh. figuring out what is appealing to the eye. Uh and it's I think also the other thing that's working here is just, yeah, the NFT world is so tied to Twitter. And uh -huh. and this verification thing has kind of shaken people up a little bit. I mean it hasn't shaken it's not like a huge deal, but it's messed a little bit with this symbol that we were very, very used to meaning something and it's changed, you know, it's, random accounts are getting pulled and there's just a lot going on with Twitter right now. And I think so much of our business, like as people who care about NFTs, it like happens on Twitter. So I think there's something about like people having fun playing around with this concept too. It's just kind yes. of like a storyline that really works for the moment. Yes, totally agree. Yeah, this is cool. And shout out to, to Jordan Lyle, um, who's been making some of these cool derivatives. There's a chromy squiggle derivative that I saw cropped up. And then those chromy squiggles had to be burned in order to mint Jordan's, you know, space invaders derivative. And so there's some fun experimentation happening at the edges here around this project. So yeah, kudos to Jack for creating something so, so compelling and so memeable. And it's fun to kind of watch the internet do its thing here. Yeah. This is like, uh, yeah, this is just like the internet on overdrive. Yep. Well, cool, man. Um, other big news of the week, sewer passes. Man, sewer passes. I saw you tweeting about this yesterday. There's actually, um, I mean, well, I guess a couple of questions. Like one thing that Yuga doesn't shy away from is introducing new supply into the market around the assets that exist. And I would say for virtually everyone other than Yuga, that's been a very difficult proposition because it just leads to 
the core assets in the ecosystem kind of, you know, getting diluted in value over time. Um, Yuga is kind of playing a different game. Like they're able to continue to inject new assets into the space. And for whatever reason that we should unpack, these things are holding value. And so um, maybe talk a little bit about these tiers of passes, what this is, but more importantly, why you think some of these things are actually holding their value and trading at values that are a little shocking for a free free mint. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, for one, I think you saw with mutant apes, like mutant apes kind of set the benchmark for for airdrops, I guess. You know, everyone got their serum. And, and, and I think it just like, that kind of worked perfectly in the sense that you know, apes got up to 80, 90, peaked at like uh, 100 and something ETH. And mutants just created this new tier that was affordable for more people. And eventually that became unaffordable because mutants got up to 20, 30 ETH as well. Um, I think they did a really good job, like making mutants a totally different tier of NFT. Like they look ridiculous. Like no one, you have to like grow into a mutant. They kind of just look awful. Do you um, own a mutant, Sam? I don't. I actually don't own any Yuga assets right now. I, I, I like Yuga, but I, I've owned apes mutants and, and kennels yep. over time but not right now so i think like that just set the standard you know and kennels worked okay ape coin was just free money that and they ended up giving to people and that's made held value i think other deed was a little bit less certain you know the price really ran into that the drop happened and then the price really you know went down for a pretty long time after the after the other deed drop but i, I think here you know it has been you know, other deed was in may so it's been about eight months it's not like they're just like going one after it's the true. next after the next you know and i think that that's that's kind of a that is something to, to keep in mind it has been a while and then two is this is something that's totally different you know this is like a, a pass that allows you to play a game and if you do that game well you know if you get a, a tier four you get a higher multiplier on the game and ultimately um ultimately presumably we don't know what's going to happen and i think what yuga does well is just this mystery like uh -huh. we don't know what these things are going to be able to get converted into at the end like what is someone who does well in this game going to do we don't know and i think yeah. what they do well is at least for that anticipation period keep people guessing and sitting in their basement playing this game and unsure it's a lot harder once you reveal to 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 make it work but one thing i would say also is that you know the price of apes like has not maintained with this drop you know, uh, like you had a really strong rally into it and then the drop happened and the price has kind of gone down about proportional to the amount of money that they've been given through this drop. So I, I think that the idea that you're, you're mentioning is still, you know, it, it is difficult to just keep sure. adding value over time. But I, th I think they are deliberate about trying to do things different, surprise people um, and keep things mysterious. And I think there's a little bit of that happening here. Is there... So do these sewer passes, I know that they're tickets to ride the game. Uh, and those ride, that ride, I think, starts today. Um, I think people are going to start being able to play play the game here uh, in, in short order. After, you know, the, the high scores are totaled, people are playing the game. I think there's like, I think I read something like three weeks of the game being played. I think it's through maybe the first week of February or February 8th. Do these passes translate to anything? Like, are these going to be objects inside of other other side? Are these going to be things that are now accompanying, you know, board apes in in the universe that's being built out in the story being told by Yuga? And is that why, in short part, that these things are being priced at these different tiers in ways that kind of are boggling if you view them purely as access passes? Yeah. So in 
I think the game you can play until February eighth, and, yeah. and and what's interesting here and is that the the points you accrue in the game they go with a pass and a wallet. So if you are a big whale and you've got other things to do and don't want to play this game, you can't go buy someone who's played this game a ton Oof. because if if it moves to your wallet, then it becomes basically uh, worth nothing or just worth something that hasn't played the game the at base. all. The base, yeah. The base, yeah. Um, but so it goes till February 8th and then February 15th is the mid, we don't know, but that's where this pass ultimately converts into something else. And presumably, you know, that'll be the next NFT, but who knows, you know, I think they, they've said in the past, like, no one's going to guess what we're doing. And I think this path has kind of gone down in that direction. Like my sense. So each of the different tiers gives you a different multiplier when you're playing yes. the game. So my sense is like that the tier fours will get a bid because if you're going to be drinking like tons of caffeine and just playing this thing all day and like devoting your life to this game, which is what happened last time they dropped a game. Um, like you're going to want to like get the best thing you can possibly get. Oh. But I don't think that many people are going to be like, oh, I'd rather, you know, I think if you're out of that tier, then, you know, I think one, two, three are all going to be pretty similar. And we've already seen that a little bit. Like that price has kind of like consolidated a bit yeah. uh, with one, two, three. And then presumably these will get you something at the end, but yeah, we really don't know. And yeah, yeah I think Yuga is generally surprise people. Like one thing, one thing I learned when I tweet about Yuga is there are people who love Yuga. Like uh -huh. this is their religion and there are people who hate Yuga. <laughs> like I hate to say it, like this community is so bifurcated on their view of this ecosystem. Um, I think that it's it's really kind of wild, but the people who like it love it and spend a yeah. ton of money on it, and it's hard for outsiders, I think, to understand. Yeah, one thing that's kind of also interesting too that I think um, that you're touching on with these different tiers is it there is a sophistication in terms of how they think about different assets and objects within their game, or and I call the game like the Yuga game inside of uh, not just particular to other side, but like the game of Yuga, like building out an economy of these assets. Like I'll, as an example, like in order to to achieve one of these highest tier passes, you needed to own a number of assets that, um, in concert with one another, unlocked this like highest tier. An example would be like the dogs. It's like shocking that these dogs, which don't have a ton of artistic or creative value, that are you know are like third in the pecking order of the board ape universe assets as uh, maybe they're above the the other side land itself but in terms of the board apes the mutant apes and then the dogs it's like third in order the fact that now it's being used as a catalyzing force to unlock new value means the dogs themselves will always have some value if they're configured in ways that like unlock things in the future and i suspect that playbook of leaving no asset behind is one that's we're still kind of like at the early edges of but it's fun to see as an onlooker watching, you know, a consumer product company do this, that they're really trying to be thoughtful about the the financialization of the assets that exist out in the universe and to compose them in ways that become interesting for holders of these things, regardless of their creative merit or their artistic value, which I think has been kind of kind of cool to watch here with these passes. Yeah, I mean, one other thing about 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 Board Apes is they've been very consistent on this. Like even when they were just minted at the very, very beginning, 
when Board Ape Kennel Club and they were a free mint and it was always zero royalty. They recently bumped it up to 2.5%, aside from a very, like, a month where they charged uh-huh. a royalty, which they donated to a dog shelter or something like that. But um, in the description on OpenSea at the very beginning, they said, like, these might be useful if paired with a, with a, with a, mm. with a, with an ape. And they've always said, like, all apes are part of the ecosystem, are, are like the club, uh-huh. but the kennels aren't. The kennels are only useful as a companion. You know, so they've done that and they've been, you know, that was true also with the ape coin drop. You got more ape coin with your ape only if you had a dog, but a dog on its own wasn't worth much. Right? I think it was worth nothing. And that's the same thing here. Like you got a tier four only if you had a board ape paired with a kennel club. So the, their universe isn't overly complex. It's pretty simple. Um, but there are some of these rules that like they've kind of held pretty true to and consistent over time. Yeah. And the, the other thing about the art, and I think this is what's just, it's, you know, it's so hard for people to comprehend is like to the people who love apes, when you see like something with trippy fur or gold fur or lasers coming out of their eyes, like, or blue beams, like that's just like a beautiful thing. And uh. to everyone else, it's like, what is this art? And they see, you know, they'll see a dog with like trippy fur and be like, how can this be below 15 ETH? Like to people in that community, yes. like, you know, and, and that's one of the things about you guys. You know, I mean, there are only 6,000 board ape holders. The whole uh-huh. world doesn't have to care as long as this community likes it. And I, you know, I'm not trying to sit here and say this thing is great or anything like that, but as an observer of this ecosystem, these are just kind of, you know, and I'm, I'm in some chat groups with people who trade Yuga assets basically full time. And I like, these are just things I observe about the insiders yeah. there that I think is hard for people on the outside to even like comprehend. Well said, very cool. All right, Sam, uh, last big topic of the day, and these are so much fun, man. It's uh, it's fun getting to riff through the greatest hits with you. Uh, the Harvest, our box drop, just happened yesterday. I saw you picked one up. What do you like about this? What is uh, what are you seeing out there in terms of volume? And uh, maybe let's dive into this one a little bit before, before we get kicked out here of the booth. Yeah, this Harvest drop was crazy yesterday. And so I saw it, and I think... One of the things that was kind of weird was the first mint. So the artist always mints one, and that became the logo on OpenSea, and it was just black and white. And uh-huh. I was like, eh, this kind of doesn't pull me in. And then that that just happened to be the first mint that the artist did for themselves. And then as time went on, pretty much all the other ones just had these massive splashes of color in them. And for me, I live in a mountain town, and I just like loved this visual of kind of like this black and white mountain scene. It kind of had this meridian feel a little bit just splashed with like this really like bold color, basically strikes coming from the sky. And I was like, uh, hey, you know, I, I like color, you know, I have a pink hair punk. And I just thought this combination living as someone who lives in the mountains. And I think, I think a lot of DGENs like, like to think about nature. We don't always, you know, we, we like trading JPEGs, but we want to be outside. And I think this kind of had, it was evocative in that sense. So for me, I was like, this art's pretty cool. I bought one. It also just got tons of trader interest and, you know, I think 6529 and JDH and curated all bought a couple grails and um, ultimately it did more volume. This project did more volume in less than one day than the six curated projects before it have done in their entire lifetime. Uh, and all of those were minted in 2022. Some of them as early as October, you know, the last project that did that has done as much volume as the harvest has done was uh, Fontana by uh-huh. harveyrainerpattern.co and that's been in the 90th floor one of the hottest projects and even that has done less than double the amount of volume of the harvest 
and the harvest hasn't even existed for 24 hours. So mm. I don't know. This just felt like something that the community grabbed onto. What What did you think? That I mean, you you've seen every art block. You've seen you've seen the head fakes. You've seen the hype, and you've seen yep. the stuff that really has longevity. Like, what was your take looking here? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is to be placed in the curated section, and we're now out of the construct of season one, series one through series eight, and we've now moved on to curators voting for a curated section at a much more it's not as strict of a cadence the supply is wildly diverse sometimes the the mints will be very low sometimes they'll be 120 sometimes they'll be 300 sometimes like this last drop will be closer to 400 and so the the lines of constraints around curation now that we've moved out of like the series one through series eight og package of curated projects and moved into something else is just looks a little bit different um, which has been fun to kind of watch the artists that have been curated for that section and see the different edition sizes roll in to see what kind of styles are being kind of assembled by the curatorial board. What I'll say is there is work that shows up on curated that is clear to me is pushing boundaries from a technical or creative perspective. And it also like does the thought crosses my mind that this is probably not going to be appreciated by the market right out of the gates. Like this is gonna be work that probably has a much slower burn, but over time as creative work continues to end up on these chains and these artists' careers unfold and more storytelling is done at the gallery and museum level or online, you know, these works will be doubled act on and people will, will come to appreciate their significance at the time of when they were created. There's other projects that launch on Artblocks Curated that just like look like straight bangers and i it's so clear based on the diversity of the mints the color palettes that are being used the conceptual nature or you know how they're playing with the idea of the piece it's just very well suited for a target market that exists and is collecting today and this is definitely one of those pieces that i think caught people's eye i mean i like chromie squiggle brilliant project it's it's also like the the i the idea that it's very um striking because it's a rainbow is like such a, a you know a, an internet type object like it just looks like something that would be beloved by a consuming global on-demand internet audience and like i just i've always said like never fade rainbows on the internet like they are it's such a powerful sub meme and if you look at some of the work here i mean virtually every mint has this um, this like diversity of colors that are just so interesting, compelling, and striking against these more muted backdrops that I think it caught the attention of a lot of folks before this thing uh, went live. The second thing I love about this piece is, you know, I, I strongly believe that like um, all work, all especially work that ends up on Artbox and Artbox Curated, but all work always has some like conceptual or storytelling reason why it was created or put into the universe or what the subject or the object is of the work and this one is no different and i feel like it also not not only is it more obvious but it, he also paired the conceptual storytelling nature of this piece with the drop like explanation and in like the notes of the drop and so this whole concept of the harvest is very much the science fiction story where it's like set in like these alien planets and and resources are being harvested um, it's an artist, you know, is a graphic designer and creative coder who's, who's based in Norway, but he really wanted to take a science fiction approach and, and, and story and pair it with, with 
the visual work that he was creating. And I think that also led to it being very resonant with the type of collectors that exist right now in this space. Um, and then I will also say just like general rule when I think about generative work is um, the tension between it feeling like a cohesive collection and also feeling like there's diversity that makes different pieces or parts of the work collectible. And as you scan through these different palettes and through these and through like the different fields, you start to see like there's a lot of richness and diversity across like the the middle of the uh, like the middle rarities of the of the collection or the top end of the of the collection, such that like it gives the feeling of of something that's very like you know um, it's frankly just like diverse and like visually interesting. Um, and so I think there's a couple of those things at play. And then when you pair it with like a, a mint size of 400, an artist who has been creating work for the last year on Tezos and has a collector base, this thing just felt like it was going to, um, kind of, kind of get people excited out of the gates. What, what are you seeing, Sam? Do you agree or disagree with any of that? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think one thing we, we talked about was how kind of a lot of the pieces on the floor look similar. I don't think you have quite the diversity that you get from like a Fidenza, which I think really kind of right. is the gold standard when it comes to at totally the very different at the very bottom, like and... at the like the least rare or the more common traits, there isn't a there's a more homogeneity than there is diversity for sure. And I agree that would probably be the thing that is the 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 idea of that is maybe the thing that makes me less assured of this project's, you know, um like let's call it a addressable market over time it's just like these things feel like they're very homogenous at the bottom end of the the common rarity but uh but i yeah so i totally agree with that sam but i mean i think your point though like i, I think i'm like your quintessential person who's the, the collector you're talking about who just looks at something and says whoa does this hit like who could i print this out what would my wife think if we put this on the wall uh. and i was like this this feels right like and i and i tweeted about it when i bought one and a lot of people uh, we're saying very similar things, just like this art is just landing for me. But uh, yeah. I mean, one other kind of following question I'd have for you is, you know, one thing that strikes me about art blocks is you can get a lot of volume and this had just, you know, like I said, this had, it's done 1200 ETH of volume um, yesterday and then overnight just dies. You know, and uh, it's kind of picked up a little bit, but the volume can really come and go. Um, yeah. It can really be hot for a couple hours and then dry up for like two days. And I'm curious, what do you look for in an artist that you think is going to be able to keep attention on their work over time? Yeah. Like, what are the ones who fake? Because there's so many art blocks out there. There's so many artists and there's a, a limited amount of attention in the community. So what do you look for in artists that you think can maintain that over time? And are there ways that you can kind of get hints at it from like very early on, like mid, at, at the midpoint? Yeah. So like first and foremost, I have to feel like... um the, uh, like the like for example this work like I have to feel like it's something that I would collect and I'm gonna take a very selfish view and like explain like what I look for but frankly everyone's different every collector is different everyone has different motives but for me you know I want to feel like there's there's some surface area or territory that's being exposed to the work that I think show, demonstrates a level of uh, sophistication or interest or intrigue or technical or creative innovation that I think is like is is it captures the spirit of like why I want to collect something um that's like the thing that draws me into a work or to an artist now to answer your question what 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 makes you know these these objects valuable over time over years um 
I would say to start, you know, there's there's very clearly this race to like get the one you want. And which is why you, you see this all the time where like collections will launch, there will be a ton of volume. You know, people will like be assembling their permanent collections. And then these things largely don't move until like there's another, you know, headwind or tailwind that happens around the artists or the platform or the the collection that then catapults it to another leg of, of a ton of volume. And so we're like assuming we're between those points, like what am I looking for to be assured that like attention will come back to this collection? It's typically things like, is the artist continuing to make work? And is that work interesting? Are they building in public and networking themselves and their work over time? Are they sharing ideas or in conversation with kind of the trends that are happening around the art form or around their work? Are they, you know, um, I, it's it's more subjective than I think objective like markers to hit, but you just want to see that they're exploring things, trying things, you know, um, working on their craft and creating just like very great work that builds on top of each other such that when you draw a line back, you can kind of see the full body of work over time and, and really uh, determine whether or not that's, that's an artist that you think is collectible or not. Now, um, there's lots of other things, you know, I think people, sometimes it's, they get representation by a gallery or they get shown at, you know, a big uh, exhibition or, you know, they're, you know, doing the, the circuit online and are doing podcasts and things like this. But I think for me, the thing I look for is more on the creative side and, and seeing them push forward in really interesting directions. Cause that's the type of stuff that I think gets you know, on the scales of, of an artist career, those are the things that get heavily weighted in favor of, um, over the long run. Yeah. And one of the, one of the podcasts that we did at Improve, I did one with Grant Revenue and obviously not a, a generative artist, but he is someone who I think really kind of puts on a masterclass when it comes to how do you kind of the stuff that you're talking a little bit, they, they, you're shying more away from, but just how do you get people to care about your work? You know, he oh. talked about how anytime someone bids on his work, but doesn't win, he's in their DMs because he oh. knows that person like cares about their art and he's got, you know, and then next thing you know, you have big name collectors buying your work. And I think that's, yeah. you mentioned like getting, you know, getting represented by a gallery can be big, but in our space, having serious collectors buy a couple grails yes. can be a mass, it can be a massive thing too. And you know, the, I, I really love the terminology you used of, do they work in public? You know, are they oh. out there giving people things to feel connected to? Yeah. Um, giving people, you know, people often forget just how much your collectors are your fans. Like yeah. they're financially tied to your success. They want reason to push your work further. They want fodder that they can share with the world about the work you're doing. And with a lot of artists, it's just about doing that. I think, and I think, I think that's hard for a lot of personalities, a lot of, a lot of creative or otherwise personalities. Like we don't, for a lot of people, it's really hard to be in other people's space. You know, Grant, yes. Grant used the term I... I shove my art down people's throats, like such yeah. an aggressive term. But Claire Silver said something very similar on, on when we when we interviewed her in, on the podcast. Like these are people who are just really out there. They're by far their biggest advocates. And the good news is you have this whole army of people who like are want to be your advocates as well, and they just they just need fodder. And I, I think being yeah. public can be a really helpful thing. I to I agree in large part with what you're describing. I'll also say just knowing a lot of creatives, it can be very difficult for people who originally got into the, the act of creating work and, and leaning on the creative side of their brain and making work like this to also pair that the reason the, 
the inspiration of why they got into making creative work with, you know, heavy financialization. And like, uh -huh. it's just a different part of the brain. And it's a, it's a reason why they never really got into making work in the first place. And so, um, the, the artists who are also able to professionalize their work are the ones that start to see some success, especially like in these internet economies. And it's the ones who don't really quite know how to make that jump in terms of professionalizing the, the creativity that, and the inspiration and, and the reasons why they got, they decided to make artistic work in the first place. Those ones tend to struggle in terms of communicating, you know, why they're making work or what the subject work of the work is or the creative process or how they did it. Uh, mostly because I think they may feel it dilutes like the final output and, you know, there is something very interesting and special about just like the creative process and making work and having it live in the universe that speaking about it or talking about it or financializing it cheapens it for many artists. And so it's a tension that I think is, um, really difficult to get right. But the ones that are able to do it very well are the ones that we see having a ton of success in our space. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think two things come to mind. One is that, yeah, I, I and I, I don't think you necessarily want to, you don't want to be out there talking about the, I, I completely, like, I, I completely agree that these are like very conflicting kind of like personality yeah. traits for a lot of people. And you, I don't think you want to be out there like financializing your work, but I think you want to be out working in public, giving people I agree. insight into what you're thinking. Yes. And, but the, the other thing, and I, I used to actually, I've never gotten to a fight in my, in my entire life, but I used to be a big UFC fan. And one of the things that Dana White, uh, head of the UFC, would say about Conor McGregor, I bet you did not expect a Conor McGregor quote in this podcast, but one of the things he said was that only Conor McGregor can be Conor McGregor. And as a fighter, you mm -hmm. have to just be that. yourself, Yes, you know, and you will not succeed if you try to be someone else. And I think this is also true with successful artists. Like one thing that strings them all together is that they are all very authentic. And I think yes. like the, the successful artists, when I... Again, when I look at Grant, when I look at Claire, when I look at Drifter Shoes, when when you look at you know the people who are doing this really well, like they're being their authentic selves and they're allowing people to get to know the person they are. And like the more I've done these artist interviews, the more that just really hits me is that these are people who are comfortable being themselves. And that's awesome you insight. You can't be someone else. Like that's just not yeah. gonna. That's just never gonna work for you. Very well said. Well, dude, Sam, Mister Statistics himself. Another another banger of an episode. Thank you for doing this, man, and uh, and and jumping in last minute. Uh, hopefully, we we put on a, a good show for folks today. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's uh, I always love the time I get to talk to you one on one. So here I got to ask these questions out in public, and it's just as interesting to hear your take. So uh, likewise, thanks for dude. Me today. Very much likewise. All right, signing off. We'll see you guys next uh, next episode of Underproof. <laughs> All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.